You're listening to a podcast by New Heights Church. We hope you're encouraged to glorify, grow, and go. Good morning. My name is Randy. I'm one of the members here at New Heights Church, and it's so good uh, to see you guys this morning and for you all being faithful during a busy holiday time. On behalf of my wife and I, Christy, we're so thankful to be part of this body of believers. Uh, we're so thankful to just, just be here. You guys have loved on us and just cared for us through good times and bad, and we're so thankful for it. This morning, we're going to be going through Psalm 123, and if you have your Bibles, that's about in the middle of the Bible. Uh, if you have your iPad or whatever you have, turn that on. Um, but we're going to be talking about contempt and scorn. It's perfect for Christmas season, right? Contempt and scorn. It's a, it's a feel-good message, so to speak, but we're going to read this passage. I'm going to read, and we're just going to tear into this thing. The psalmist writes, To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God, till he has mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, O Lord. Have mercy upon us. For we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease of the contempt of the proud. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, We thank you that we're able to glean and and gather from your word this morning. Father, we're thankful for your grace and your mercy and the birth of your son, Jesus, and the glory and the joy and the peace that he brought into the world, Lord. Lord, we look forward to his coming. Until then, Lord, we are watchful saints watching and waiting. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. The church, first I want to remind you before we read this text, if you've been here the past couple weeks, we've been going through the songs of ascent, the psalms of ascent. I want to talk about where this is positioned in Scripture. This first psalm of ascent begins in 120, and these were the songs that were believed to be sung by Jewish pilgrims as they made their way to the appointed feast during that time. These these feasts were appointed by God, and they would sing these songs on their way there. And from a geographical aspect, they did have to ascend and climb to where they were going. So they would sing these songs on their way. And when we think about the holiday season, we we think about how busy it is. We talk about how stressful it is. But we often say it's the most joyous time of year, but for many people it's not. We're still suffering and trials and circumstances. Don't take a break for Christmas. It continues. One year ago today, my mother went to be with the Lord. The first sermon I was, uh, this morning I was preaching, I looked down and it was almost exactly the exact same time. I can't wait to see her, but I long to see the face of Christ so much more. But when we think about this, all of us go through trials and circumstances and suffering. And when these things happen, what do you do when you've had more than enough? When you feel like you've had all that you can take, church, what do you do? When you feel like you're at your wit's end, you're at the end of your proverbial rope of life, so to speak, and and maybe you've prayed and you've prayed about a situation in your life and nothing seems to change. Well, this psalm is for us today. The psalmist gives us some insight from his own personal suffering on how to respond. 
And if you look at this passage, you'll find the context of it's actually found in verse 3 and 4. This is what the situation of the psalmist is. This psalm flows out of incredibly trying circumstances that simply feel overwhelming to the psalmist. He says he's had more than enough. But notice in verse 4 that we notice the specific burden of the writer. He says the constant persecution of God's people. And he says they're being treated with mockery, contempt, and scorn. Now, I don't know if you use the word contempt in your daily vocabulary. I myself do not. My wife and I are kind of weird. We like a lot of crime documentaries. So we, you probably have heard contempt of court. That means a willful disobedience in the court of law. And some of you may have personal experience with that. No judgment here. Just glad you're here. But most often, that's what that's associated with. But here in this psalm, the word contempt is associated with verbal ridicule. And I can't help but associate that with one of my favorite shows, The Office. If you've ever watched that show, you have uh, Michael and a man named Toby. Toby says very few words. But anytime he's around Michael, Michael is so disgusted by him, he just says, you're the worst. You just make me sick, Toby. And that's exactly the way I think of this when I read this, the verbal ridicule. But occasionally it's accompanied by persecution and mistreatment as well. And quite frankly, the psalmist says he's had more than enough. More than enough of contempt. More than enough of mockery. And he's crying out to the Lord to be gracious to him. And in reading this passage, church, there's clearly not been an answer yet. When we get to the end of verse 4, there's no resolution. He's still waiting for the Lord to respond to his cries. Maybe that's you this morning. Now, I find that waiting can be trying in and of itself. I'm not a patient person. Don't ask my wife. She'll, she'll make you think bad things about me. I'm not patient. But what did the people of God do when they faced trials of life? And they continued to wait for an answer. They continued to wait for deliverance. Well, this psalm answers that question. And it's something you and I can look at even here at the end of 2022. Church, what have you been praying for? What have you been waiting for that you find to be simply more than enough at times? Maybe it's not the same situation as this psalmist, but I'm sure we have all found ourselves seemingly at the end of our rope at some point, and maybe even now. More than enough of pain. More than enough of loneliness, betrayal, abandonment, scorn, abuse, sickness, relationships, financial issues. The list could go on and on if we went around the room. But I want you to see from the psalmist is that when facing life's trials, God's people fully focus their eyes on the Lord, watching and praying for His grace and His mercy. That's what this psalm teaches That when facing life's trials, God's people fully focus their eyes on the Lord, watching and praying for His grace. This is a psalm for weary eyes. In fact, if you look at verse 1 and 2, eyes are mentioned four different times. There's a specific emphasis placed on the eyes. Church, I think our eyes get weary when we get them fixed on our circumstances. When we become overwhelmed or discouraged, our eyes get tired and weary. We can have a spiritual myopia. Most of you know I'm a nurse, so I tend to uh, attribute things, point them to medical things. But 
you know, you know what physical myopia is. You just look around, many of you are wearing glasses. You suffer from physical myopia. Because as, without the aid of those glasses or those contact lenses, the condition of your eyes, everything will be a blur to you. You can't see straight. You can't focus or see things like you should see them or focus on them. But maybe you've also had spiritual myopia where your eyes have become so focused on your time of suffering and difficult circumstances in your life that you can't see straight. Everything is a spiritual blur. We have trouble seeing the Lord God in the middle of it all. You've been waiting, and everything continues to seem like a blur to you. And if you don't get those spiritual eyes corrected, you're in danger of losing your way. But the psalm helps correct that spiritual eyesight. But what we're going to see in order to do that, you have to be focused on the right thing. Church, in the trials of life, when you've had more than enough, you have to believe the Lord is more than enough. Now, I don't know if you notice how this psalm begins. In verse 1, it begins in the same way as Psalm 121 that Pastor Patrick preached on last week. But in 121, the psalmist says he lifts his eyes up to the mountains. He's traveling on his way to Jerusalem to the feast to obey God, to come and worship. And as he looks up to the mountains and the troubles that might lie ahead, he looks there and he says, where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. But when we get to 123, here the writer goes straight to the one whose throne is in the heavens. He's not lifting his eyes to the mountains and his circumstances. He's lifting his eyes to the one who's enthroned in the heavens. And that's where we have to begin if we're going to correct our spiritual eyesight. Now again, this is a song of ascent, so I, I think how this fits in might be this way. In 120, they're traveling to Jerusalem to worship at the temple. And, and so clearly in 120, the language pictures them in a faraway land, they're outside in the Netherlands, and they're making their way to Jerusalem. In 121, they're traveling on their way to Jerusalem for the feast. And in 122, you see that they have completed their journey. It actually says, I was glad when they said to me, let us go into the house of the Lord to worship. So clearly, they're in Jerusalem. They're participating in worship of the Lord. And maybe, maybe what 123 is saying is they're remembering what they have to face when they go back home, when they have to descend back home, that even though that they're obeying God, they're doing what God has said, they've come to worship the Lord, they know what happens and what waits for them when they have to go back home to the real world. And they want to keep their eyes focused on the Lord. There's four things I want you to see in this passage. We look to the Lord exclusively. We look to the Lord attentively. We look to the Lord humbly. We look to the Lord persistently. We look to the Lord exclusively. Verse 1, he says, To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. In fact, when we say look to the Lord, that's a very basic and cliche statement in a lot of people. But part of the Christian walk is learning and relearning the very foundational things that we learned when we first got saved. That, Christ, that he was more than enough for our salvation. He's more than enough for everything that we face. The psalmist paints a beautiful image here as he begins the psalm in the first person. He's saying to you, I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Church, from the trouble, from the pain, from the stress, from the turmoil of this world, 
You must turn your attention and your focus away from that. Get it placed exclusively on the Lord. Church, you will forever be discouraged if your eyes remain focused on your circumstances. And when the psalmist had had more than enough, he said he lifts his eyes to the throne of Yahweh. He doesn't look to his circumstances. He doesn't look around for earthly help. He, he looks to the Lord who is enthroned over all other powers. Everything is beneath him because he is ruling in the heavens. He's sovereign. And it may, it may feel like the painful trial is ruling over you right now and in total control of your life. But it's the Lord who reigns. It is the Lord who is in control. He is enthroned in the heavens. Everything is beneath him. Therefore, everything else is in his control. There's rest in that. There's peace in that. Now, if you remember, this is the same place that Jesus himself instructs us in how to start in prayer. When he taught us in Scripture in prayer how to pray, he said, Our Father who what? Art in heaven. Church, that's not just a little cute little phrase to begin a prayer with that sounds all fancy. That is the very basis of prayer and submitting and acknowledging his power and sovereignty, not just over us, but over it all. And it reminds us every time that we pray that he is enthroned in the heavens over all earthly powers. We pray that his kingdom would come and not ours, and that his will would be done, not ours. Church, when you pray, when you approach the one who's enthroned in the heavens, you're making a highest appeal to the highest authority you could ever make. And when you do that, you get your gaze fixed towards heaven. That's why it has to be exclusive, because of who he is. Why would we look anywhere else to the, to the highest authority, the greatest power that exists? Where else would you go to have your problems addressed? God alone reigns high above all the difficulties of your life. Therefore, we have to seek Him and Him alone exclusively. Even when you're tempted to look elsewhere, and you will. It's part of our depravity. We will look elsewhere. When you're tempted to shift your focus on something or someone else, remember, the Lord alone can meet your need. Church, if God can perfectly rule the heavens, He can be trusted to perfectly rule your life here on earth. Look at the verb in, in verse 1. The verb tense used by the psalmist, I lift, that indicates a continuous action. That means that, that the eyes of the psalmist continue to be lifted to the Lord, that it was part of his daily life. It's exclusively on God and God alone. He's not looking at those around him. He's not looking at the trouble that surrounds him. His eyes were focused and fixed on God. Church, you see, as long as you think there are other places for you to go to get your answers, you will go there. But when you come to realize and believe that God alone can give you what you truly need, you will look exclusively to Him. One of my favorite passages in all the Scripture is found in John chapter 6. In John 6, Jesus is teaching some hard sayings, and we're told that many of His disciples went away. And they were not walking with Him anymore. They left. And we're told this because the Scripture says they considered his teachings to be too difficult. They had been walking with Jesus. They had been faithful. They had considered themselves to be his disciples. But they walked away. And Jesus looks to his disciples 
And he asked the ones that were left, do you also want to go? And Peter, in that moment, responds with some of the most beautiful words in all of Scripture. He looks at Christ and he says, Lord, to whom should we go? You are our answer. You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. If we go anywhere else, where would we go? Church, if there's somewhere else you think you can go, you will go there. But we're told to go exclusively to the Lord. So we not only look to the Lord exclusively, we look to the Lord attentively. Verse 2 says, Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. Look at how the psalmist gives us this beautiful picture of exactly how we should be looking to God. He moves from the first person and talking of himself to the corporate body of, of worshipers and he draws them in the picture with him. He paints them together like humble slaves that eagerly wait for the least signal from their master. He speaks of male slaves and he talks about the female slave who also looks to the hand of her mistress. Everyone during this time would have understood exactly what he was talking about here because there were many slaves in the ancient world. I don't have any slaves. I am a personal slave to my kids and my cat, but uh, maybe you do too. Maybe you have a cat and a kid you're a slave to, uh, so you can relate. But we don't have slaves. But for us to understand, masters often commanded their servants by using hand signals. They would have a signal that they would use to recognize that when the master did that, they recognized what their master wanted them to do. Now, if you wasted any of your precious time watching any of the queen when she died, uh, I'm not judging you. I just don't understand why. Uh, you would have seen Prince Charles turn into King Charles, and there's a great TikTok to where he's sitting at the table, and he makes a little signal, and they don't respond to him. He gets very upset. You know, they've already ticked off the king on day one. But that's exactly what's going on here. So the servant would keep their eyes on the master's hand, looking and waiting and seeing exactly what the master would direct them to do. It gave them direction for their work. This is the psalmist's way of saying believers must get their eyes and their sights fixed on God, not just exclusively, but fully dependent and fully submitted to Him. The, be the believer's dependence upon and submission to God should be equal to the most obedient servant of an earthly master. Church, we get our eyes fixed on God. And we look, ex look to Him for every move that we make. And God has given us clear hand signals, if you will. He's given us his word to look at that's given us exactly how he wants us to respond to him, how he wants us to relate to him. And he wants us to think about every aspect of our life. It's in his word. And a humble servant would stand where they could see their master's hand, watching and waiting. They would have their gaze fixed on him, and they would be eager to obey any command with complete and total submission. So one of the things we need to adjust, church, is understand that we obey because he is Lord and he's our master. We don't come because of what we want. We come because of who he is, and we come humbly to the throne. 
And there's a level of attentiveness that's needed here. Now, if you think about this, we understand that eyes are a part of our attentiveness. When you stand up here, you see that most eyes are open, but as the sermon goes on, some get weary. They start to close. And if you have children, I've seen many of you do it, no judgment here, I did it to my own kids. When you want their attention, you grab them by the sides of the arm, give them a church pinch, and say, look at me. Look at me. That's how you know their attention is on you. There's a level of attentiveness there. It's how it's associated. And maybe, maybe, God this morning is showing us through his word that same very thing. That whatever we are enduring, right in the middle of whatever trial we're in, he's reminding us of that very thing. Look at me. Look exclusively to me. Get your eyes attentive to what I'm saying through my word. Church, if you don't resolve to fix your eyes on the Lord, you can be sure your eyes won't look upward to him on their own. We are inclined to look downward, inward, everywhere else, where Dr. Phil word, however. But to the Lord, we're quick to focus on the difficulties that we have and our despair. We're quick to look for some type of inner strength or, or something outside of ourselves that we have learned to put trust in outside of God. But we must be resolved to fix our eyes attentively and exclusively on God and nowhere else. The third thing we do is we look to the Lord humbly. Verse 2 through 4 says, Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, O Lord. Have mercy upon us. For we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. Church, the servants have no right to demand anything of the master. No right. And when we come to the Lord in prayer, we don't have a right to demand anything of a holy and sovereign God. We have to see our sense of helplessness. We have to acknowledge our sense and our need for God's grace and God's mercy in every aspect of our lives. We not only look for God's hand, but we're looking for his glorious grace and mercy. And as the psalmist looks at his difficult trial in verse 3 and 4, he cries out for mercy. He's basically saying, Lord, there's nothing I can do about this. Uh, the problem that I found myself in, I have no power to change it. I can't do one single thing to alter it. I'm helpless. And in my helpless condition, I, I stretch out empty hands and ask that you fill them with your grace and mercy. Now, if you remember, the first two verses put the emphasis on where we must look. But in the last two verses, mercy starts to become the dominant thing. The psalmist is praying and he's crying out for mercy from the Lord. That's what he's looking for as he exclusively goes to God. He's humbly seeking his mercy and his grace in his life. And he draws the other worshipers into the scene because together they're looking to God as a slave looks to their master. They're looking to him for mercy and grace. Church, there's no sense of entitlement here. Only total and utter dependence on the master. There's no name it and claim it deliverance. 
There's a demand upon God that carries some sort of expectation that God's hand must deliver and God's hand must move if I speak loud enough and with authority and declare it done. There's none. Church, you realize that even if you've been obedient, it never puts you in a place that you can make any demand upon God. He's a holy God. You're his servant, and he's the master. And when you obey, you're only doing what a servant does for the master. So we humbly cry out to the master for mercy and grace. We're not delivered from our enemies because we're somehow superior. We're not delivered from a circumstance because somehow we've deserved it. We're delivered because God is good, God is gracious, and He's faithful, and He's a merciful Father. God shows grace to those who recognize their state of helplessness and cry to Him as their only means to deliverance. Church, you are helpless. But if the Lord is your God and your Master, you're far from hopeless. That's the good news. That's the good news of the gospel. That's the good news of this psalm because the Lord is good and the Lord is gracious. So we humbly approach his throne to seek the grace and mercy that we need. Church, I don't deserve anything, but I go to the Lord because he's kind. And I ask him in his kindness to to grant me grace and mercy. This prayer is not an attempt to get God to do anything he's unwilling to do. God isn't saying, you know, I really want to do this. But if you ask enough, maybe I will. No. God is very willing. The psalmist does not plead with God for mercy because God is somehow reluctant to act on behalf of his people. The reality is the psalmist cries out for mercy because he knows the character of God is good. He knows the character of God is gracious. And he's longing to receive what he knows God loves to do for his children. It's an act of humility, church, before the Lord, knowing that we do not make demands upon a holy and sovereign God, that that we trust God to give us His grace in whatever answer that may be. We're never in a position to make any demands upon Him. We're to follow the example of the psalmist who prays, Have mercy upon us, Lord. Instead of praying, Give me my heart's desire. Give me what I feel I need, Lord. We pray, have mercy upon us. Not reward me for what I see as my goodness or obedience or not be nice to us because we've been such good little Christians. Church, there's no confidence in approaching God with any sense of entitlement. The confidence we have is when we approach God asking for mercy is not based on our character but God's good and gracious character. So we come humbly to the throne. Church, no matter what you're facing this morning, you only need to remember that all we need in the hardest situations of life is God's grace and mercy. If we have that, then we have enough. Because the Lord is more than enough. And sometimes that mercy comes in many ways. Sometimes that mercy comes in relieving the contempt and the scorn and whatever it is we're experiencing. Sometimes he will relieve you of that pain, of that loneliness, betrayal, or whatever it is you've simply had more than enough of. Sometimes he does do that. And that's part of his mercy. 
Sometimes that mercy comes from the strength to hold up, the ability to, do it, to endure the duress, the, this beautiful mercy of endurance. Sometimes that mercy comes with a change of heart for those coming against us. And sometimes that mercy comes with a change of heart in our own heart for those coming against us. Church, we never know how God is going to graciously act on our behalf. But we wait patiently for His grace and His mercy. And the fourth thing we do is we look to the Lord persistently. You know, when you read this psalm, you get the impression that he's been praying these things for quite some time. This is not a new problem for the writer. He says that their souls have had more than enough of the contempt thrown at them. And it makes me wonder, when I read this, how many times has this writer traveled to Jerusalem to worship at the temple to only return home to the same kind of trials that still face him? Church, how many times have you? You've came, you've gathered in worship just like this morning, just like the writer. You've sang praises to God. You've studied the text being preached. You dreaded going to work the next day. You dreaded going home to that spouse or that child. You dreaded going out those doors. And that circumstance you brought in with you is still with you when you walk out that door. But you prayed, and it didn't seem to change. Here in this psalm, they look to their enemies. And it seems that their enemies continue to mock and deride them. And you get the sense that he's been praying this prayer for some time. He's been here before. But faithful persistence, church, is a sign that you truly believe that God is your only source for all that you need. If you truly believe that, that God is your only source, you won't take his, your eyes off of him. Just like the servant won't take his eyes off the master. You'll cry out for the Lord for mercy and grace because you know His gracious character is your only hope. Church, if you look to the Lord exclusively, you look to the Lord attentively, and you look to the Lord humbly, you will do it persistently. Notice the psalmist in verse 2. He says, Our eyes look to the Lord, what? Until He has mercy upon us. Until. That's beautiful. It's a word of expectation and not doubt. The psalmist is saying, Our eyes are looking exclusively to you, Lord, and we know you will answer us. You have been faithful in all things. As Peter said, Where else can we go? Who else has the words that can give eternal life? Where else can we go? I know it's easy to feel like, how many more times can I pray about this, Lord? I've been there. How many more times can I bring this to your feet and lay it at, your th at the feet of the Lord? And I feel like I'm not seeing the answer. I'm not seeing the outcome that I th had hoped for. Some of you have had been on this road. Some of you are on this road right now. You have issues in your life, personal life, family life, marriage, children, workplace, school, Whatever. And you've brought the burden to the Lord before. You've laid them at His feet. And it seems that every time that you pray for God to grant you grace and mercy, it seems the problem only gets better. Never gets better, only gets worse. You feel like you've had more than enough. All that you can take. 
How long are you going to have to suffer and feel like God must not be listening to me? How long do you pray to God before you just have to take things into your own hands? I'm praying and praying. I'm still dealing with this. I guess I'm going to have to deal with this on my own. And this is the experience of many believers and quite possibly the psalmist here. I've prayed this prayer before, Lord, and now I'm coming to you again. As I find myself in Jerusalem, I'm worshiping at the temple, and Lord, we're still being mocked and scorned by our enemies. But church, here's the beautiful difference. The psalmist says, but we're going to pray until you're gracious. The psalmist's heart is not full of doubt, but full of anticipation and faith. He knows the God he serves. Church, God loves us so much that he will not allow us to be enamored with the things of this world and miss the most beautiful thing that we need, which is him. You see, there are times when we ask God to sanctify us, to make us more Christ-like, that he allows trials, he allows suffering and periods of suffering because it's through that suffering and through those trials that you will set your eyes on him and him alone and see him as your only source of deliverance in a fallen and broken world. He's your hope. He loves you so much that he will pry your hands away from the things that matter that you would tightly grip to so that you would let go and possess the most important thing, which is Christ and Christ alone. Let's look at Hebrews 4 quickly, because I want you to understand that nobody understands suffering more than Jesus. Nobody. Jesus, the Son of God, came into this world as God incarnate so that he might go to the cross and die in our place. And he understands suffering. Every bit of your suffering. Scripture actually tells us it's, it's through Christ now that we receive God's grace. Plus, we learn later in the Bible, in the book of Hebrews, that Christ is the one enthroned. He's the Son of God. He's the one that was promised. He's the one that came and has ascended into the right hand of the Father forever. And so when we look to the thrones of heaven, we look to Christ. Look at verse 14 and 15. It says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens... Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Church, Jesus understands what it is to suffer because he himself suffered ultimately on the cross. But if you look at his life and his ministry, Jesus understands having more than enough of pain. He understands having more than enough of loneliness, betrayal, abandonment, mistreatment, scorn, abuse, contempt. He understands all of that. Child of God, there is nothing that you have faced, are facing, or will ever face that Jesus doesn't understand. We have a high priest who can sympathize with his children. And not only that, he's now, having died and rose again, enthroned in the heavens, seated at the right hand of the Father. Look at verse 16. It says, Let us then with confidence draw near to what? The throne of grace. So that we may what? So that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That's beautiful. 
Church, where does your grace come from? It comes from the one who is enthroned in the heavens. And who is the one who is enthroned in the heavens? He's not a distant God. He's a God that came into our world. And he, can, he understands and can sympathize with our sufferings because he knows all those things. He knows the pain, loneliness, betrayal, abandonment, mistreatment, scorn, abuse. And yet the scripture says he never sinned. He can give us the grace and mercy that we need. Church, that's where we go. That's where we run. And that's where we rest. At the foot of the throne of grace. And the truth is, we are helpless. But if we have Christ as the center of our heart, and Christ as the focus of our eyes, we are not hopeless. We have to draw near to Him to find the mercy and grace to help in time of need. Now that also means this morning that if you don't have that hope, that if you don't have Jesus as your Savior, you're in need of an even greater form of mercy, the one for your soul. And maybe you feel Christ drawing to you to him this morning. And once you come to Christ, you will face trials in your life. It's promised in the scriptures. You won't step out those doors and never face problems again. But here's the difference. You will go home trusting. Trusting that the one who rules the heavens, you can trust him to rule your life. You can trust that the same mercy and grace he gave to save you is available to sustain you. That when you've had more than enough, Jesus is more than enough. And the good news is that when you run the race of life, Jesus is the one you continue to look to to give you that grace and mercy that you need. As Hebrews 4 says, you come to the throne of grace. Church, he's the one enthroned in heaven. That you need to look to exclusively, attentively, humbly, persistently for the grace and mercy that you need. Listen to these final words from Hebrews 12. It says, Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking, fixing, focusing our eyes on who? Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God forever. Church, so that he could save the elect from your sin, Jesus endured more than enough on the cross. Everything needed to save us, Jesus paid the price. And as you keep your eyes fixed on him, he will provide everything needed to endure every trial that you face. Everything needed to finish the race. He gives us this beautiful, glorious mercy of endurance. And maybe you're tired this morning. And you feel like quitting the race. Maybe you've had simply more than enough. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Exclusively, attentively, humbly persistently, and watch and pray for him to grant you the grace and mercy that you need, and he will give it freely. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. To learn more about New Heights Church or a relationship with Christ, please visit our website at www.newheightswv.com.